I want to invite you then to Mark chapter 5 where I want to read to you the entirety of the chapter and hopefully describe some things that may jump out at, it, at, out at us from the work of Jesus that he demonstrates for us in Mark chapter 5. Last week we looked deeply at Mark chapter 4 in which a compilation of Jesus' teachings are piled into one single chapter. But then we resume the narrative that Mark tends to tell at what I would say is kind of a a, a crippling pace even. It's, it's, it's just like it will wear you down because he, he uses the word immediately over 40 times in this book as if to say, and then this, and then this, and then immediately this, and immediately this. And he resumes the narrative, but he does so, as I hope you'll notice, at a very different pace. So much so that this chapter stands out amongst the rest of the chapters that teach about who Jesus is and what he's done. So I want to begin reading in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter together. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now make sure you remember this is not a small thing. They were on the way across the sea where Jesus said they ought to go, and as they were on the way across the sea, a a, a massive storm overtook the entirety of the sea, and the people thought they were going to die. The apostles thought that they were all going to die as the waves were crashing over, and Jesus was calmly sleeping in the back of the boat and they ran to Jesus and said hey do you even care if we die and Jesus says have you still no faith in verse 40 of chapter 4 and then he told the winds and the waves and the weathers to in the weather to cease and to have peace and be still and then they were terrified because this is what they saw their master had even authority over the weather So when it says that they came across the other side of the sea, that's no small statement. Verse 2, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God not to torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid 
And those who had seen, excuse me, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, that is Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and alive. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your, te- your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And when they... And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat.
I think I can show you in this chapter that God defies our expectations as he restores victims of desperate circumstances who have no hope apart from Jesus. God consistently defies our preconceived notions, our expectations, our preset ideas about him and about who Jesus is. And he does so specifically as he restores people, people that outside of Jesus would have no hope whatsoever. God does this. He constantly defies our expectations. A while back, I, uh, I got to uh, be a part of, uh, as a few years ago, the, the great tradition of South Dakota. Um, there's a few of them. They exist kind of in the middle of nowhere, somewhere on the interstate. Um, one of them you know very well because uh, you can kind of learn about it from about three states away, and that is wall drug. Wall drug, yeah, yeah. Get on the interstate drive, start, start driving west, and you will begin to see what a spectacle and what a fantastic gift it is for you to be driving through, or to maybe, wall drug. And the signs built a great deal of expectation for me the first time, right? Wall, wall drug, this is amazing. I started Googling it, found out like their marketing budget is through the roof, and like millions of people, literally millions of people, will stop at wall drug. I got to tell you, I was pretty disappointed. Right? Just, I'm gonna, I, don't know, I don't know if you're like a wall drug loyal person here. I just, there's a few gas stations, nah, nothing that impressive. Right? I, I had expectations about wall drug, not that impressive. The other one that I'd heard so much, and not as many signs, but I heard a great deal about, um, have you heard about this one? Uh, Owl's Oasis. Owl's Oasis, legendary. I have a hoodie that says how legendary Owl's Oasis is in South Dakota. Anybody wear this one? Chamberlain, South Dakota? Uh, quite a disappointment. Again, Owl's Oasis, I, I, I would just judge. I was, when I walked into the place on that given night, uh, my wife and I brought the median age down um, in, in the restaurant by a lot. Um, and so I, I was like, okay, maybe this, this isn't for us necessarily, but people love it. I, but I, I got to tell you, uh, what I expected um, was way up here based on what I'd heard, and, and what I experienced was eh, meh, disappointing at best. But then there's something else I discovered um, in South Dakota, and I want to, you to know about it. I was in Belfouche, South Dakota. Belfouche, it means beautiful fork. It's where these two rivers come together in the west side of the state and in, in the northern hills. Um, interesting little place. And some truckers who were on their way to and from Minot and Williston in the oil field from Wyoming um, shared with us as we were asking about the best place to eat. They said there's this Chinese food place in downtown Belfouche. Chinese food. Downtown Belfouche. Truckers said it's amazing, right? So I got to already tell you, my expectations were really, really low. Fun fact. The best Chinese food, not in China, is in Belfouche, South Dakota. <laughs> right? It is the best. Now, again, this is like Americanized Chinese food. But if you walk in there, just ask. Don't look at the menu. Just ask for Kim's special. Kim is a chef, and he will make you whatever he wants and ask for extra spicy, and he will make it crazy good for you, and he will make you eat things like tofu that you would have otherwise thought is awful and you will find to be delicious. I know. Blows your mind. And my expectations of, let's say, the word of mouth of some truckers on their way to North Dakota 
not exactly, you know, food critics or culinary attaches or anything, but, but my expectations were fairly low. And I walked in that place and walked out impressed that I had just eaten probably the most delicious, what would qualify as Chinese food that I've ever had. My expectations were low, but I was met with something different. If, if you've ever had your expectations met with reality and your expectations were vastly different from what you actually experienced, then, then, then you were in a good spot because three different times Mark tells us a story about Jesus and the way that God does something through Jesus that messes with people's preconceived notions about Jesus. And so even in this moment, if you, if you would call yourself, maybe, a, maybe you're a doubter, an agnostic, maybe this can't be known, maybe you've got some questions that, that are really difficult, or maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian, or maybe you just have a great deal of doubt about who this Jesus is, I want to encourage you to listen carefully. This is a great time for you to be here, because you're probably going to be in the same setting as most of the original hearers of this story, thinking one thing about Jesus and expecting something from him, and coming to find out when, they've made, when they made it face-to-face with Jesus that it was completely different. That what they believed about God was radically different, and what they believed about Jesus was radically different from what they already thought. So clear your mind. Make it blank. As, it, as, as, as you are thinking about, man, it, could it be possible that the greatest Chinese food is in Belfouche, South Dakota, of all places? You're in the right frame of mind to be ready and hopefully awake and hearing something that will defy what you would assume to be true. And Jesus has three important encounters here. Remember, Mark tells these stories at breathtaking speed. Just just knock the wind out of you, knock the legs out from underneath you. Just runs through these stories. But this whole chapter was wrapped up in a very detailed account that only included three different narratives. There's a man who was possessed by not just a demon, but many demons, a legion of demons, it tells us. And then there was a man who had a daughter, Jairus's daughter, who was at the point of death. And there's another woman who has a very secret malady in which Jesus heals them. And all three of them, and I think I can show you, had their expectations completely defied. I believe Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. Remember, Mark always wants to tell us how the prophecy of Isaiah, that a new creation is coming, a new kingdom coming, uh, the old is going away and a new is coming in Jesus Christ tends to follow the pattern of Exodus and even the new Exodus that Isaiah tells us about. In in chapter 55, something might be fairly helpful for you. When they were trying to picture this new Exodus, the Israelites wanted to know what it was going to be like when God restored all things to them. He simply said through the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And Jesus gives us three, I hope, poignant reminders of the truth of this. That even when we begin to think we have this figured out, we begin to, I think, begin to worship our own sense of understanding and pride ourselves in how much we know Jesus confronts us with a higher and greater truth. Not that they're utterly mysterious and inaccessible. In fact, they're not. Jesus has sufficiently revealed God's character to us in his life and his work and his death and his resurrection and his teachings and his, the things that he da- did and the things that he taught and the things that he accomplished and that he finished for us. 
He's sufficiently revealed that to us, but that still leaves this mysterious nature of God. And it's not mysterious in that it can't be known. Instead, it's mysterious, kind of like the sun is mysterious when you stare at it. You can't learn a lot about the sun by staring at it other than it hurts, and it's obviously more than you can handle. So also we see that God's thoughts, God's ways are above ours, not that they aren't fully and sufficiently revealed to us in Jesus, but they still remain so far high, so much higher above us that to begin to plumb the depths of us begins to show us the limits of our own understanding and even the limits of our own imagination. So much so that when Paul says that this good news is the revelation of God's higher ways to us, he says that God is going to do something that is exceedingly and abundantly greater than all that you could ask or all that you could even imagine. And that's what we see here, Jesus confronting people with a power that is beyond what we could even imagine. Jesus has power. Over and over and over again, Mark tells us stories about Jesus casting out demons. And you saw a little bit of dialogue between Jesus and these demons. Legion, it even says. I, I love, I love the, like the, the, just the ominous nature of that. Like Jesus says to the demon that's in or the demons that are in this man, he says, you know, who are you? What is your name? And what, a, what an epic response. We are legion. That's a, what a creepy thing for a person to say. We, like in the plural, we are this. But every time that the power of demons is demonstrated for us in the book of Mark, it is not to show how great and mighty demons are, but it's meant to be a backdrop for the unsurpassing authority and power of Jesus. So here's a man who cannot be restrained. You see, he had like supernatural power. They, tra- they chained him up. He ripped, him, he ripped the chains out. He, he always had no clothes. I, I want you to see this, this picture of the enemy oppressing people, destroying the image of God in him, making it to where this person was harming himself, this person was disconnected and outcast from his people, and this person was a mystery because of the way he was being oppressed by evil forces. And even as oppressive and powerful as those forces are, they simply serve in this story... Not as a story of how great they are, but how even in their greatness, they obey the will of Jesus. Listen to them. They they say, Jesus, what will you do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Remember this this phrase, Son of God, that that the demons give to Jesus is a statement that, according to Mark, even the disciples didn't get. Even the apostles never got to where they could fully say, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And yet this is what these demons recognize. This is why later in the New Testament we find that simply to know who Jesus is and to understand facts about him don't make you any more special than even the devil and demons. They know how powerful Jesus is, yet they are still demons. They're still evil. And instead, to see Jesus for his goodness and to throw our faith in him and throw our trust and reliance upon him, that, that's the thing that distinguishes someone who simply knows of Jesus like these demons and those of us who see Jesus and trust that we can rely on him. Every time you see demons, every time you see evil forces, they're not meant to be an equal and opposite force that God is working against. They're meant to be simply the backdrop for which Jesus paints a picture of his power. Every time. So, Side note here, dispense with the notion that there's like this balance of good and evil in the world. Even though evil has influence and power in the world, it only has power and influence for a period of time because it has already been cast out. 
you skip to the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, a, an ominous story about an, a, a war broke out between that which is evil and Satan and all of his demons and these, these evil forces against God and his angels. And, and this, this amazing war takes up like a couple of verses. It was such a great and epic battle that it lasts a couple of, vo- of verses. And in it, we see that the enemy, having already been defeated by what Jesus has accomplished, is cast down. He's on his way out, and he only has a limited power, a limited sense of authority, and we come face to face with that here, don't we? So dispense with this idea that there's good and evil, and and in in the balance, you and I are living in this, and that's a comic book story, man. That is is right out of the comic books, right? That's that's a Halloween theme, okay? That's that's like the Walking Dead kind of stuff there. This, This is not real. The evil forces that exist and have power in this earth have a limited authority, have a limited power, and that limit finds itself at Jesus. Jesus has authority. Jesus tells evil what to do. He's not afraid of it. He confronts it, commands it. And one of the most amazing things happen, these demons, legion, leave and jump into this amazing herd of pigs who immediately commit suicide. So get the picture of what Jesus is doing here. He's left the west side of the Sea of Galilee, the Palestine, the place where Jews typically lived. And he he goes into Gentile territory. He goes into the territory of people who are not religious, not not of Israel, but instead they are Gentile. They They are are religious. They're outside. They're pagan in nature. And Jesus goes into their territory. And there's this really cool thing throughout this entire chapter that Jesus confronts. He confronts uncleanness. He goes into unclean territory. And he exercises authority over unclean spirits. And then, from a Jewish perspective, this story is probably an abomination. The swine herds that were supplying Roman legions with pork were an unclean food that Jews were not allowed to take part in. Now remember we covered this in the book of Acts. There's a chapter we call the Bacon chapter in which we see that all that which is unclean is made clean by Jesus so that we would remember that even a pig, if a pig who wallows in its own you-know-what can be made clean by Jesus, then there is hope for you and I, right? If Jesus can declare righteousness for a pig, then he can do it also for you and for me. It's a picture of the gospel. But for this particular purpose, Jews would have thought this is an abomination. And for Jesus as a Jew to go to an unclean place would mean that he was probably separating himself from ceremonial cleanliness. That way, when he came back, he probably had to spend a time of ceremonial cleansing before he could re-enter the synagogue. But then Jesus meets not only a man with an unclean spirit, living in an unclean place, he's surrounded from an unclean scenario. One of the other things that ceremonially would defile you as a Jew would have been a dead bodies. And to go and to be around dead bodies would have made you ceremonially unclean. And to be amongst the tombs like this man was would have immediately defiled them. It would have kept them out of the synagogue. And he confronts this. Confronts an unclean place and an unclean situation and even unclean animals that supply an unclean people and an unclean territory. So that you would know that Jesus is not freaked out or scared by that which is evil or unclean, that which is unrighteous, Jesus has no problem walking right into and doing something that changes everything. 
But then he defies the expectations of the man. Did you catch what happened? So the man paints this beautiful picture of following Jesus, right? Jesus cleans him up, and then it says that all of a sudden he could stay closed. So that means he could be back amongst people. And it says that he just sat there waiting for Jesus. What a beautiful picture of discipleship, of you and I following Jesus, sitting at his feet and letting him lead us. But then he asks a question that, that you would think we would, we would praise and you would think we would think is a really great idea. In fact, probably this guy thought it was. The people said you need to leave because what you're doing terrifies us, just like the disciples when they were saved from the storm were terrified. And in verse 18, it says that as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. You get the picture. Jesus heals him, casts out a legion of demons in a miraculous fashion. And this man, now healed, now set free from demon oppression, says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. This is right where we would think, oh, this, is, this, is, this guy becomes a disciple. And what does Jesus say? He says he did not, in verse 19, permit him to follow him, but said to him, you go home to your friends and you tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Hear me clearly. There's a beautiful picture here for you and for me. Uh, we often paint this picture of evangelism and, and we paint this picture of mission and the words that the church sometimes hijacks and redefines for their own purposes as something that we do over there and out there. Like we get on a plane, we fly a long way to people um, that, that live in a, in a, in a more, de- un, more undeveloped country and then we give them this good news. And that's, that's kind of our concept of mission. And we say missionary, we get scared, right? We think, well, I don't want to be a missionary because I want to I stay right where I am. This is really empowering for you. I hope you see this. I hope you're humbled and challenged by it. Jesus says, don't go anywhere. You, your responsibility is to go to your friends and tell them what the Lord has done for you. This is like, this is the place where my excitement for starting churches in the United States comes from. Because don't be fooled, the gospel needs to be heard everywhere we go. And for some of us, it may not be to go, but it simply may be to go home. Go home. This is your responsibility. This is your task. And you'll say, well, I don't know what to tell them. Tell them what the man who had been possessed by demons tells them. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Tell them your story. Tell, tell them how you, you were in darkness and in his mercy, oh, Jesus opened your eyes. He goes to an unclean place, casts out an unclean thing and an unclean defiling place. But then he returns, and as he makes his way back to the more Jewish side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, he encounters two more people. Jairus, who was a leader of the synagogue, a ruler of the synagogue, and he says, my daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her, and then she will be made well. And so on the way to healing this person, a woman sneaks up in the crowd and touches the robe. The robe that Jesus is wearing touches his garment. And just by touching this garment, she's healed. Now feel the weight of this. This is, this is, again, another story Mark wants to tell us about how Jesus confronts unrighteousness and uncleanness. If you want to dig into this, I don't want to read it word for word because good luck. Um, Leviticus chapter 15 is one of several places in the Old Testament and where we see the ceremonial laws of righteousness and unrighteousness. Namely, that whenever, because this is a time and place in which people didn't have medical 
supplies. They didn't have access to the kind of products that over-the-counter keep us sanitary and clean and, and free of infection. But anything that, that was abnormal, even if it was normal, that was coming out of any part of your body, whether it was from a wound or from a natural process, made you unclean. And so this had two different, two different purposes. It wasn't just for women, but it was also for men. In fact, Leviticus 15 starts talking about, hey, if a, missing, a man has a discharge of some sort, he's unclean. And until that's worked out, he's got seven days of being unclean until he's atoned for by the priest. But it also says the same is true of a woman. But it says that once a woman's menstruation in that period is passed, well, then there's a time where she's back in the good graces of the synagogue. And here you begin to see why that's a problem for this woman. Now, don't think that's an oppressive thing. I don't want you to think that that's somehow an oppressive rule. That, in fact, it was a gift that was simply a way of saying that God's desire for our lives is wholeness, right? And so there's something going on with your body good or bad, we want you to take some time off. Right, go, go. We're not going to force you to be a part of this. Men or women, just, go, go get that, get that taken care of. Then come back and f- then find cleanliness. Find cleanliness before God and sacrifice and atonement for your sin. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because this story here isn't about a woman who had something that came and went. She had something that it tells us for 12 years had made her ceremonially unclean. That's a big deal. That's a problem. If you want to read with me, Leviticus chapter 15, we come to find out that as this is supposed to play out rightly, that as soon as this happens, as soon as there's cleanliness, then these people return to the group. They return to the, I'm, I'm afraid to even make some of you, make some of you even read this because you're going to be like, what, that's in the Bible? Yeah, it's fun. It's good stuff in the Bible. It's clean. It doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't pretend uh, that anything great is happening. So, so if anything that the person touches or the places they are, that's, it's unclean. Any person has some sort of a discharge or emission, that, that's a big problem, okay? The reason, it says in verse 29 of Leviticus 15, on the eighth day, she, that is the person, says this about the male as well at the beginning of the chapter, shall bring, she shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons and bring them to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And this is why it's important. Verse 30, and the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. So make sure you get the picture here. When this period takes place, when this little bit of time, whether it's a male, female, all sorts of different things can cause ceremonially uncleanness, when it's over, then the person comes back, and then, then they are restored to two different things. Did you catch that? Sacrifice of worship, and then sacrifice for sin. Atonement for that which is broken in us. So make sure you get the weight of this woman's burden. She's not just doing something that has ostracized her from people, but it is something that has, according to this law and according to this custom, has disconnected her from the atoning and forgiving work of God. When she runs up and touches Jesus, it heals her and sets her free. And I want you to see the beautiful picture from Leviticus 15 to this. Not only is her uncleanness gone, but according to the power of Jesus that he demonstrates for the man who could not walk and was dropped into a house by ripping a hole in the roof, there is not just cleanliness before God, but there is forgiveness and righteousness. That's what Jesus does. And then something weird happened. This is, this is kind of a secret thing, isn't it? This is kind of a 
this is kind of a hush-hush topic, is it not? This isn't, this isn't table conversation. This isn't the kind of thing anybody really wants to talk about regularly. This is the kind of thing you wait till everybody leaves and, and then you talk about it. Or you're the person that talks about it when everybody's there because you don't like to make them feel awkward. Either way, it makes it kind of a weird situation here, doesn't it? And you would think Jesus, being just a nice guy, would let that little secret happen. She jumps up and heals, or is healed. And instead of Jesus, you know, kind of like looking back and winking, he makes a big deal of it. He goes, who touched me? Literally, who touched my garments? As if to show his omniscience, that not only was he not touched, but his garments were touched. And he knew that power had been exercised, that something had happened. There's no surprises for Jesus. And, and the disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? You're in a crowd of people. It's like being in a mosh pit and be like, who touched me? Same thing here. But the woman knew exactly what had happened. And that which she wanted to keep a secret, and that which you would expect Jesus to keep a secret, what does Jesus do? Who did this? Who's the one? Come before me. And it says, in fear and in trembling, she fell down before him and told him, this is a beautiful phrase, in verse 33, the whole truth. And he did not condemn her, but what does he do? He commends her and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. So you got this man who you would expect Jesus to say, follow me. I just cast out these demons. And he goes, no, no, don't follow me. You go home. Tell people about what the Lord has done. And then you see a woman who has a very secret burden who doesn't want it to come to light. And Jesus, instead of helping keep it a secret, defies her expectations and draws attention, the attention of the crowd, mind you, to it. And then he goes to Jairus' house. On the way, these people begin to lose hope, and they already say, hey, look, this is, this is a problem. This child is already dead. Don't bother Jesus anymore. As if him stopping to heal this woman kind of delayed them to the point where this daughter of Jairus has no more hope. And Jesus says, no, no, no this, we're going to go. And when he gets there, he goes into the place of the dead person. Mind you, again, the third time in this chapter where he goes and touches and comes in contact with people who would make him unclean. Make sure you see the beautiful picture. Jesus has no problem jumping into the mess. He walks to this dead body, and what does he do? He commands this dead body to come to life. And just like the 12 years that had oppressed this woman, we see this woman, this girl has 12 years of age, and she is brought to life. Both of these stories are about females being healed by the very touch of Jesus. A touch, mind you, that would have, would have made him unclean. Both are called daughter by Jesus. Both the women's illness and the girl's age are given us this ominous picture of 12 years. In both stories, Jesus is met by people who rebuke him, verse 31 and verse 40. People are like, no, Jesus, this is the way this works, and he defies their expectations. And both stories bring Jesus into contact with someone who is unclean, whether it's a corpse or a person who is ceremonially unclean. And this aspect of uncleanness connects this present story front and back, even to the man who's demon-possessed. This is the beauty of Jesus. He runs into this. He doesn't avoid the uncleanness he wears it. But I want to dig into this one phrase here and maybe wrap up. You see, Jesus boldly defies people's expectations by drawing them into something that is miraculous and defies what they had preconceived or they had thought previously about him. You find out that following Jesus isn't simply just getting needs met, but it's instead being in the presence of Jesus in such a way that we see and believe something into him. So 
two different times in this story that has obvious parallels between the woman and the daughter who had died, we see the phrase faith. Your faith has healed you, he said to the woman. Your faith has healed you. And then it says here that do not fear, in verse 36, to the ruler about his daughter, but only believe. Make sure you, you see here that this is, this is a tricky concept for us in our westernized post-enlightenment minds to grasp. This idea of believing and faith are the same word. They're the exact same word. We in the English language don't have such a word, but believe and faith, faith that being a noun, believing that being a verb, are the exact same form. Pistos, pistis, pistuo. These are the, all the same different forms of the exact same word. Why is that important? Because the faith that she demonstrated was not in herself or her own ability, but in the possibility, as she says, that she might be healed. If I just touch his garments, verse 28, then I will be made well. And the faith that she had was defined by the object of her faith. Her faith that caused her to be healed didn't come from herself, but it came from her object. The object, the thing that she believed in. And this is why the word faith and believe are, are tough words for us to understand. In fact, it's almost better to use words like reliance or trust. Because we, I would argue, in our own kind of mentality of the Western individualized concept, has, have made faith into something that's actually a possession of our own. Ephesians 2 says that it's by grace through faith that we are saved. Why is that important? Because this is not something that we boast about. In fact, we're dead in our trespasses and sin in verse 1. We used to be dead, just like this little girl, dead. Dead people don't do anything. They don't have a will. They can't be anything. All they can do is be dead. And that was us. And it says, verse 3, that we once lived according to the passions of our flesh, namely dead flesh, decaying flesh. And we carried out those desires. And by nature, because of this death, we were under God's wrath, unclean, ceremonially and literally, because of our own death. But verse 4, God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead, here Jairus' daughter, in our own trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he now raises us up with him and he seats us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So that one day in the coming age, he would show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus. By grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works or something you have done. And the reason for this in verse 9, it tells us, is it so that no one would boast. Can I tell you something? that I, I want you to hear this, this, is a, this is a challenge that will be for us to carry until the day Jesus comes back. Your faith in Jesus, your willingness even to have your eyes open to Jesus, your willingness to tolerate me talk about Jesus loudly is a gift of God for which you get no credit. It's grace. It's God's mercy. Grace that this story shows us defies our expectations and creates a context in which we can share, as this woman did, the whole truth. Because did you see what happened at the very end? 
What did he tell Jairus and the whole family? They had publicly wailing and mourning and carrying on. And then Jesus brings the girl to life. I don't, I don't know what that's like for you. I got two little girls. This story hits a little bit home. And then he goes after bringing them back out of what was, must have been the worst mourning, the more, worst sadness. He tells the people, Shh, don't tell anybody. This is the greatest thing that they've ever seen, the greatest thing that's ever happened. And they go, Jesus goes, I know you want to tell everybody, but don't. He defies the expectations here. Because when grace abounds, something transforms us. Literally, this girl comes to life to demonstrate for us that in God's grace, through Jesus Christ, so too in our sin and the death that it causes, now have abundant life. Life that not even being thrown six feet under the ground can stop. This is it. This is what God has done for us. He's rich in mercy and he demonstrates it for us. And I tell you this because even as I tell you this, you will begin to think that your faith in Jesus is something you deserve credit for. And even as I tell you the words of Ephesians, you don't get any credit. You don't get to boast about being a Christian. You don't get to boast about it. No one may boast. This is not a result of you. This is a result of God. It's His grace. And the fact that you believe in it is, as it says in verse 8, a gift. It's not your own doing. You don't get to boast about following Jesus. And some of you who are not following Jesus, this should be a breath of fresh air, right? These Christians can shut their mouths about all the stuff they're telling me and rubbing my face in it, right? They shouldn't have been doing this. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Christ. Let that rattle inside of you. Because the faith that healed these people was faith in Jesus. And we regularly, even though we think we trust Jesus, we think it's something that we have accomplished. But friend, don't miss that the healing comes not from the fact that they believed. The healing comes from the fact that they saw a healer and reached out. Had the healer not walked through, they would have nothing to believe in. And their faith would have been worthless. Their faith was valuable because the object of their faith. I'm standing up here. This is an example. I'll continue. I'm 18 inches above the rest of you. And it's not because I'm hovering. It's because this thing's made out of metal and it holds me. And I had the faith to step onto it. But if I had a great deal of faith and yet this was broken, my faith would not hold me up. You all are sitting on chairs. You're being held off the ground by metal chairs. And you, whether you recognize it or not, had the faith to sit in it. And you believed, I believe that chair can hold me up. But if that chair was broken, all the faith in the world in that chair would have not kept you off the ground. Correct? You'd be on the floor. Now, did your faith recognize something that might possibly be true? It looks sturdy. I mean, it kind of looks like it might not fall. I guess, I mean, okay. Some of you maybe jumped on the chair with greater faith than the rest. But those of you who have great faith in the chair and those of you who have no faith in the chair are both not on the ground. And it's not your faith or the amount of faith or the quantity or quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith that's keeping you off the ground right now, namely that chair. It's the object of my faith that's keeping me 18 inches off the ground. Because I could believe and believe all I want. But if my object of faith is in myself, then as soon as I step over here to where I believe that I can hold myself 18 inches off the ground, well, you know what happens then. I either gracefully or not gracefully hit the ground. Why is that important? Because we regularly in our self-centered view of the world draw the things, the gift of God, and we begin to think that it really is 
our doing. I'm going to close with a story as we begin to prepare for the way we celebrate this. The way we demonstrate this is on a regular basis, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That is communion in which we say that, that there is no power over us that Jesus cannot cover. There is no sin that we have committed that the blood of Christ cannot atone for. And even though we are unclean and dead, Jesus touches, reaches out to us in our uncleanness and draws us into himself. And that is a gift of God that we see and recognize and step into in faith. A few years ago, I had a strange turn of events that worked out in a providential way. I was a pastor in Texas for five years, a part of a sleepy little church to see it come to life, and God did it, and it was amazing. Um, but while I was there, there was a, a woman that I loved very dearly. Her name was Faye. Um, and I'll pick the most down-home southern woman you can imagine. That's Faye. Her name, that's it. This is it, man. Um, played southern gospel on the piano. Just lo- I mean, just that's it. And I remember uh, as I met this, this woman, she, she loved, this is a weird, but she loved to hear me sing. I, right? This is like one of those, like, your mom thinks you're handsome and nobody else does. She somebody loved, I would harmonize when we would lead worship, and she just, she thought that was the most amazing thing ever. Her bar was low, okay? Her bar was very low. And, and in the process of doing that, we got to talk about the songs that we sing, and, and, and we would say, you know, the, the gospel is what we're singing, and this is what we're declaring, and, and she believed in Jesus, and she had put her faith and trust into Jesus, and several years ago, she was diagnosed with an untreatable, strange form of cancer, um, a form of leukemia that they caught, that they had no treatment for. And so they sent her to Dallas, Texas, to where there was an experimental treatment, the only place in the country where she could receive it. And she was in the University of Texas Hospital in downtown Dallas. I happened to be, I say happened, as if not providentially, happened to be there um, in, in the city for a conference. I'd been flown in to, to share with some people and to meet with some people and be a part of a conference there that very same time. And a friend told me that this woman who used to be a part of my church, was on her deathbed. And I got to go and wash my hands for like 15 minutes to get inside this room because she had no immune system left. And I'm sitting there by her, by her, by her bed, and, and this thing that we're talking about, like what, what is your faith really in, became painfully obvious. This woman who had been following Jesus for longer than I have been alive asked me on her deathbed, I believe in Jesus. I profess my faith in Jesus. But I don't know if my faith is enough. This woman who had been following Jesus longer than I have been alive, on her deathbed, facing the unknown, simply could share with me, I I don't know if my faith is enough. I don't know if I have enough faith to be saved. I, I say providentially because I don't know if anyone else would have been there to say it but I got to share the gospel with a Christian. And in that moment, I got to tell her, you are right. You do not have enough faith to save you. Oh, but God has enough mercy to save you. And I reminded her, I said, we used to sing a song during Easter, it was Jesus Messiah. And we repeat this phrase that comes right out of here. It says, all our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. All glory to you, Lord, the light of the world. It was a mistake to mention it because you know what she made me do right there in in a hospital room, right? She made me sing it. And I'm weeping. It was a mess. I'm, I'm weeping and cracking. It was, it was awful. But on that, in that moment, the person who you would most expect to know that the object of our face is secure, that Christ will hold us up even through the mess, that yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, not because of my faith, but because Jesus has already walked through and delivered us. 
And this woman who should know this and had heard me preach this for five years on her deathbed facing the unknown needed to be reminded that it wasn't her faith that would save her. It was the saving work of Jesus that would save her. And she had put her faith in her own faith. And she was hoping in that moment that her faith would be enough. Well, friends, you know what happens when you face death. (laughs) All that stuff goes out the window. And in this moment, I got the opportunity to share with her that our hope is not in our faith. Our hope is not in how how upbeat we are as we face death. Our hope is that Jesus has conquered the grave. And when this Jesus says to these people that their faith has made them well, friends, remember, this is a gift of God. Christian, you don't get to boast that you're a Christian. You just get to thank God that he saved you. That he looked down while you were dead in your trespasses. Dead. You didn't even want him. You didn't even think you needed him. And then he rescued you out. And when you see this, when your eyes are open to this, it's not your faith that holds you up. It's the object of our faith, Jesus, who holds us up. So in a few minutes when we celebrate communion, we are declaring boldly and defiantly that we are not capable of saving ourselves. It is only the broken body of Christ. It is only the shed blood of Christ that gives us hope. And someone will tell you, in a few minutes we're, we're going to begin to declare this and sing about this and, and sing uh, this miracle that God has saved us. And we're going to walk back and someone's going to be back there. If you, um, you'll see some gluten-free option over here. I don't want that to keep you from celebrating the body and blood of Jesus. But you're going to take a piece of bread and someone's going to declare this good news over you. And I want you to hear it. That you're not good enough. You're a failure. You're dead in your sin. But this is the broken body of Christ for you. And then we'll dip this into the blood and we will say that this is the blood of Christ that was poured out for us. And when we do this, we are saying that our faith is in the saving work of this sacrifice of Jesus, that we are hopeless without it. May we declare that boldly, even in the face of death. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your willingness to reach into this mess and do something beautiful. Uh, Thank you for demonstrating for us with this young girl who is dead, demonstrating for us with this man who was possessed by demons, demonstrating for us this woman who was subject to a malady. We, We thank you so much for demonstrating to us through them that you have the ability to heal and restore. Uh, It's not by anything that we have done, but it's only by your goodness. So for the first time, maybe some of us, we begin to open our eyes to this and to fully trust that his work is sufficient, that what he has done is good enough. The one who casts out demons has the power to restore what's broken in us. The one who's not afraid to jump in the mess and heal a woman of her uncleanness to restore her atonement before God can do the same for us. And the one who commands dead people to life is the same one that can say to our dead and rebellious hearts, come to life and experience joy by my my body and my blood. We thank you for the truth of this. We thank you for the power that's in this. We thank you for this good news declared to us. May we hear it and respond to it in Jesus' name. Amen.